It's week 14 of 2018. We've got a lot of articles from the past few weeks to cover since we've had some special events recently, but we've also got a big change here in the podcast format. We'll talk about that more right after this on The Technado. Welcome to the podcast, and don't be confused. I know what you just saw is a little different than what you've seen before if you've subscribed to this podcast since the beginning, but we have changed our name. We're no longer just the IT Pro TV podcast. We are now the Technado. Feel the power. How exciting is that? Feel the burn. <laughs> and the Technado is brought to you, of course, by IT Pro TV, but we wanted to keep things a little more separate. So Technado it is now. We've got the fancy uh, Technado logo there. I mean, expect... Uh, Sharks flying across at any time. and It's, it's madness. It's, Cats and dogs living together. It's, it's uh, pretty exciting. <laughs> more, more on Technado later. But uh, I am Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined by Don Pizzette, as always, here. And we're just going to jump right into the news because we've got, we've got a ton of stories. Have you, you've been gone a little bit. I've been gone. We've had InfoSec. So where, where you been? All right. Well, uh, you know, I, I tried it to handpick because I, I had two weeks of, yeah. of tech news to, to pick through. Uh, so I tried to pick the, the most current things and, and things that were exciting. A lot of stuff did happen the last few weeks. We're going to kick things off with some Linux news, right? And the uh, the first one that I wanted to touch on was that the uh, you know Linux Mint, which is a distribution that's it's pretty popular. It's it's Debian based. They uh, typically have have released a little bit of hardware, not just software. So they have the Mint Box, um, and in the past it's a small affordable PC that has used an AMD processor, and they announced the Mint Box Two. And the Mint Box 2, uh, or they call it the Mint Box Mini 2, has some pretty neat hardware. And the big thing, though, is that they did switch to an Intel processor. And when I look at this thing, it, as just a simple PC, it is, it's a great solution. And I think they, they are about $300 US, so they're, they're pretty affordable. But even if you didn't want to use it as a Mint Box, you could format it and throw PFSense on there, and they make great little firewalls and, and, and other things. So uh, over on Beta News, they had a breakdown from the press release that actually came from the Linux Mint Foundation. Uh, and this is all developed in association with a, a hardware manufacturer. The Linux Mint team works with them to create this high-volume order so they get it at a low price. But that hardware has been announced. If you get bored, go and read about it. Uh, it is a, a pretty pretty slick deal. It has a 4 uh, uh, gigs of RAM, 60 gig SSD, a quad-core Intel Celeron J3455 processor, and all packed into a small form factor with a dual gigabit NICs. That's the part that makes it really ideal for uh, for like a router or firewall-type solution. So they announced that uh, pretty cool hardware. Now, going back to the, the chip swap, I, I can only assume these days that has something to do with, with Meltdown Inspector, but it seems pretty quick if that's well, a move they made because now of that. They're going from AMD to, to Intel, Intel so which is like the, the opposite yeah. way that all of the crazy press has been telling us. So in their case... It used to be that AMD was less expensive than Intel. And so if you wanted to make a low-cost PC, you went with AMD. That was the way it worked. Uh, for video gamers, AMD had a lot of optimization, so it was popular there. But for like servers, it's almost entirely Intel. Well, these days, Intel prices have dropped, and AMD prices have gone up because their new Ryzen processors are actually pretty good. So now cost isn't the differentiator, and so you're seeing some low-cost options like these switching over to Intel. You'll see more of that. I, I think the... With the ARM processors getting out there and starting to impact this market, we're starting to see a little bit more of a, uh, a leveling off of prices that uh, is, is, is great for the purchaser. 
Now, speaking of uh, Meltdown and Spectre and Chips and Linux, the uh, the new kernel's out, right? 4.1.6, so it, this addresses So it's uh, 4.16 4. is the, okay. uh, the latest Linux kernel that came out. Uh, Linus Torvalds announced it, uh, came out on schedule, as they, they typically do. Uh, there's not a whole lot of shining excitement built into 4.16, like support for the jailhouse hypervisor, which most people don't necessarily care about. Uh, LWN.net had a quick write-up on it, and they really got to the to the meat and potatoes of it that here there's a lot of meltdown and Spectre mitigation work. So Spectre meltdown, biggest security flaw in processor history, I think. Uh, so we've all heard about it. We've been getting it beaten into us for the last two months. But one interesting thing that I wanted to touch on here is when this first was breaking news, Pundits were saying that you could be getting performance hits as great as 40% if you implemented these mitigations. Well, now we've had a chance to see what those mitigations actually look like. And while the 4.16 kernel is out, the people over at Pharonix, or, or single person, Michael Larabelle, he did a, a phenomenal job putting out an article just a few days ago actually showing what the performance impact looks like. Um, you know, Actually, I think this article, it, it came out, Two or three weeks ago, but it was just recently updated for some clear Linux improvements. So this happened. is pre-Linux uh, kernel update, though, in he's terms of testing, what the, the benchmarks are. He's testing with the mitigations that are now on by default okay. in 4.16. Okay. Yep. So uh, he did a breakdown, and not just for Linux, but also for Windows. Uh, so you can see what that looks like. And it's not the 40% that everybody was, was crying about. Um, but it's still not perfect. So if you look at his numbers that he got for, uh, like, the Golang test that he did... Uh, you'll see that on Windows, the stock deployment, that means with the mitigations turned on, got a 0.8 versus with the mitigations turned off, a 1.0. And, and he was basically setting that as that baseline, that if you disable the mitigation, here's normal performance, and then here's the hit you're taking once you turn the mitigations on. So absolutely, you are taking a performance hit when you turn on the Spectre and Meltdown mitigations. Now, what that means is that if you're a end user, um, that was a, let's see, a couple of his tests came back with um, results he couldn't verify, so uh, some of them are going to look a little different here. But uh, uh, if you're a home user, that's a real choice you have to make. Like, is it worth it for me to protect from Spectrum and Meltdown when I'm not necessarily a target of the the, the use for this exploit? That if you're a a cloud services provider, you're a target for this. You know, one VM could potentially start exploring memory of another VM. That that's bad. But if you're a home user, you might rather have that 20%. You know, I could get 20% more performance if I turn this off. Maybe that's ideal, right? Intel's already announced that they've got new processors that are coming out that'll have fixes built into the hardware. But until then, you're giving up performance by having this turned on. So now we're starting to see that uh, with Linux kernel 4.16, when you go to it, these mitigations will be turned on by default. So you've got to choose to turn them off if that's what you're looking for. So that's the big thing. If you're tired of hearing about Meltdown Inspector, that's fine. But understand that the performance of your system will be affected. If you're not benefiting from the protection, you may want to look into turning that off. Yeah, well, that's nice that you can actually still turn it off, that they didn't lock those things in. It's not easy to turn off, but you can. Yeah. 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 Well, the, you don't want it to be too easy to turn off because then people <laughs> who shouldn't turn it off maybe are turning it off. But, oh, that's true. I mean, Facebook's given all your data up anyway, so you know who cares if Meltdown gets in there and takes a little bit more. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. So next up, uh, this is from Extreme Tech, uh, in, in a, uh, this is a, a kind of gaming blog here. Um, Valve removed Steam machines from its homepage. So um, this is something you were explaining to me a little bit beforehand. I, you know, I raised a few eyebrows at this one, you know, because we're, we're not a video game yeah. site. And, and why are we reporting on video game news? Um, the main thing I, I wanted to highlight here was uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, I'm not sure, um, Valve, the, the company that makes the Steam gaming platform that's responsible for the bulk of online game sales, they decided that they were going to back the Linux operating system. And they created their own Linux distribution, and they said, we're going to port Steam over to it. We're going to start having video games that run on it. And we're going to release dedicated hardware that runs Linux and runs the Steam platform that people can hook up to a TV and use like an Xbox or a PlayStation. And so that was uh, what was called a Steam machine. And there were five or six vendors that all jumped in on day one, and they started selling these Steam machines. And they didn't sell very well. Right, they they weren't uh, big industry things. They, a lot of them cost a thousand, two thousand dollars. They were expensive, uh, and the game options there were just not as great as you'd see if you were running Windows. You'd have twice as many games to pick from. There were a lot of AAA titles that didn't get ported over to Linux, and even the ones that did didn't always perform as well. But the key thing that I appreciated was by by Steam attaching video games to Linux a lot of the advancements we see in computing comes from video games, right? Mm -hmm. All the video card advancements, which are now used for Bitcoin and cryptography and stuff like that, all came because people wanted video games to look better. So video gaming drives a lot of the innovation that happens in technology. Well, when Valve kind of tied this together with Linux, that was great. You know, Steam, they made more, or not Steam, Valve, Valve software made more open source commits, uh, you know, changes to the source code repositories uh, than, than many other commercial companies combined. So it was really good, especially in the graphical world for the Linux environment. Well, a couple of days ago, they pulled the Steam machines from their, their website. They're still there, you have to dig for them, but there's no obvious link to be able to get to the Steam machine pages, which is a great way for a vendor to say, this product is dead. Right. So immediately, several news sites started reporting on that. Uh, Steam has since come out and clarified a little bit and said, they're not dead. We still support the platform. We're going to keep developing the operating system, but they just don't sell well. And we need that space on our homepage. You know, some user experience UI UX expert somewhere said, hey, that's consuming a hotspot on our page. Let's get that out of there. So uh, realistically, though, it's not a good sign. Uh, you know, Linux has never really broken 1% market share on Steam's platform. For them to actively develop an operating system like this that's less than 1% is not a viable business model. Now, the Valve, they do all sorts of weird things, all sorts of crazy projects. Some of them go places, some of them don't. Uh, this one, it's not, not really a good sign. So I, I don't think we're going to see much more life on that, and that, that's going to hurt. That's going to hurt Linux as a whole. Yeah, it is a shame, and we'll, we'll see if something else maybe jumps and fills that gap or if, if there's a th other well you've got that other hardware we talked about at the beginning the uh the mint box Linux mint box yeah. Maybe we can or mint box we mini. start gaming on the uh, on the mint box <laughs> mini um well we've got a, another uh, article about benchmarks here we first we talked about the uh 
the chip uh, performance with with Linux and and Windows. Um, now we've got DNS resolvers uh, performance compared. So this article from Medium, they're looking at Cloudflare, uh, Google, Quad9, and OpenDNS. So uh, what sure. did they find? Before I went to vacation, uh, we had reported on an article where Cloudflare was launching a, a new public DNS service, and it had a really unique IP address. It was 1.1.1.1, right? And since then, all sorts of information has come out. But I made a comment in that episode. I said, I don't like a lot of these services because their performance is slow. So, for example, um, DIN DNS, the dynamic DNS company, uh, who is owned, I think, by Oracle now, uh, they have a, a DNS server that you can point to that filters out malicious sites and can even filter out advertisements if you wanted to, if you just use their DNS servers. Well, I like that idea, but their DNS servers are so slow that you're getting latency with every single web page that you go to. You just got to do a DNS lookup and it slows things down. So I made that comment about Cloudflare. I said, hey, these guys are launching a new DNS service, but be careful because it may have a little more latency than what you expect. So uh, a gentleman by the name of Nicholas Z put out an article on Medium where he actually sat down and did a, a quick study to find out what performance was like. And he tested globally, not just from where he was. So he actually did tests from several different places. And he broke down Google's public DNS against Cloudflare, against Quad9, OpenDNS, and several of the other ones that were out there to kind of get an idea of what that looks like. And what he found was that the performance of Cloudflare solution was actually pretty good. It says that Cloudflare was the fastest DNS for 72% of all the locations he tested from. It had an amazingly low average of 4.98 milliseconds across the globe. And just to put that into perspective, the DIN DNS service that I was talking about, I would routinely get DNS lookups against them that were 40, 45 milliseconds. Here we're talking about uh, almost 100% yeah. smaller. I mean, or 10%, 10 times less. I don't know, whatever it is. Math. But, but yeah, it, basically five seconds or five milliseconds versus 50 milliseconds. It, it's a significant drop. Yeah. So um, so that that's pretty impressive. Cloudflare is doing a good job on their performance. Now, there's still the whole privacy issue. Any DNS lookup you do against them, obviously, they're going to have in their logs. And so now they effectively have a record of your browsing history. That's why Google has their public DNS servers. So when you use these DNS servers, you're giving up something. So what do you get in return for it? Well, some of them offer things like uh, filtering out malicious sites. Cloudflare's not doing that. Google's not doing that. So all you're doing is saying, I'm going to use their servers for an easy-to-remember IP address. Is that why it's quicker, potentially? Because it's not doing these other things for you? Or is that... that it's not like a real-time thing. No, it, it's just because they've got a lot of hardware behind it, you know, a lot of infrastructure, so they can geo-route geo you to servers close to spy. But the reality is you have an Internet service provider, right? Uh, everybody, if you're on the Internet, you're using an Internet service provider. They likely give you free DNS servers as well, and they're going to be the fastest because it's right there on the service provider network. Hmm. So, for example, at, at home I have AT&T Fiber. So I can use AT&T's DNS servers, and I get sub-millisecond when I look up against them really fast. Now, if I wasn't on AT&T's network, I probably wouldn't get sub-millisecond, but I do because that's the network I'm on. Here at the office, we have GRU. If we use their servers, we get really fast lookups, and you benefit from being able to use the caching of all the customers that are on that same network. So if it's performance you care about, use your ISP's DNS servers. They're normally going to be best. If you're trying to get privacy and filtering, Cloudflare and Google don't give it to you. Uh, if you look at some of the other vendors that are out there, they do. Uh, and somewhere in here, let's see, he does a breakdown on which ones actually provide 
uh, filtering. I'm trying to find it now real quick, but I can't seem to find it. Was in that, that chart you had? At the was it in the chart? The top. I saw security settings and privacy. Privacy DNS script. Yeah, but not like filtering no, out no. the malware side of things. So, uh, so some of them do, some of them don't. Um, with Cloudflare, see how it says here, Google is private and unfiltered. Cloudflare, private and unfiltered. But then you get to Quad9, private and security aware, right? So it, it's actually looking to to block malicious domains. But then when you go and look at the performance on these things, and you can see where uh, like the global average for Quad9 is significantly lower, right? Uh, you have Cloudflare at 4.98 milliseconds, Quad9 at 18.25 milliseconds. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot. Like, ooh, I had to wait uh, <laughs> 15 milliseconds. Yeah. Woohoo! Right? But but that adds up. It add, and you do tons of DNS lookups. When you pull up a web page, there might be 20 different servers. In fact, um, like here on Medium, I'm, I'm blocking 12 ads alone. That would be 12 different lookups that happen. Uh, you know, it's it, you have a lot of lookups. It does add up. It does slow things down. So So do you feel that you owe Cloudflare an apology? In this episode, for for what you I, said, I, I would say yeah. You know, I, I said <laughs> watch out for performance, and now it looks like Cloudflare actually has a great performance. Right now, I will still say there's not really a value proposition here. Right, I'm not gaining anything by using Cloudflare service, except for I can remember 1.1.1.1 really easy. Yeah. Versus my my uh, ISPs DNS servers, which are like 209.251. You know, I can't remember it. 1.1.1.1, I can, right? Yeah. Is that worth it to me to then give up privacy and other things? Probably not, really. Yeah. But that, well, all those milliseconds you're saving. You know, you can cash them in. That's time with your family, <laughs> if you didn't have before. Time at the casino tables. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right. Uh, next up, we're going to switch gears a little bit to some uh, Mac news. This is uh, from cultofmac.com. Uh, why Apple Watch apps are dying off in droves. So I had an Apple Watch for a little bit. I... I and stopped wearing it. Maybe that's why. I, I like to think I have that kind of sway, but uh, I thought you had an Apple Watch, but... Same again, as you. Yeah. I had an Apple Watch. I stopped wearing it. Uh, well, I also moved away from iPhone, so I, you, they don't work so well without yeah. an iPhone. It's just a watch uh, then. Yeah. You know, the, the whole smartwatch thing, nobody, nobody, literally no company has created a smartwatch that is great. Many companies created mediocre ones, right? Uh, it's rare to find one that has battery life that goes beyond a day. Uh, the ones that do go beyond a day are extremely basic or usually have a black and white screen or something like that. Um, but not many people made it a great smartwatch, Apple included. Well, they're on version three of their smartwatch now. And honestly, I can't tell the difference between version one and version three. They, they put a red dot on the crown just so that you can shame people and say, oh, yours isn't version 3. It doesn't have a red dot. What the hell does a red I dot I have a you? Sharpie, though, yeah. and uh, <laughs> now I've got the latest version. You are, you are fingernail polish away from upgrading <laughs> to version 3. So anyhow, Apple made this rule. They came in and they said, look, our smartwatch it is getting better and better every year. You've got to be on, on um, you know the, the newest one. Well, watchOS version 4 is coming out, or actually it's already been released at this point. And um, uh, with watchOS 4 coming out, they've got a new software development kit, and Apple has put a requirement in that says, hey, if you develop a app for the Apple Watch OS, it has to support, if it's a new app, it's got to support watchOS SDK 4. If it's an old app, any update you do has to be targeted at watchOS 2's SDK or later, and they really want you to get to 4. 
Well, what's happened here is when they launched the watch, everybody just assumed it was going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. So tons of companies created watch apps. And then they saw an install base that could be measured in the thousands, right, which is not successful. So then they said, well, there's not really any point in us making this better, and they left it alone. Most of those apps have not changed since the beginning. So when Apple came out and said, hey, you need to basically retarget to this new SDK, a lot of developers said, you know what? Eh, app's not really being used. We'll, we'll just pull it, and that's what's happening. And I'm not talking about little companies, right? Like if if the Technado podcast removed our yeah. amazing watch app, that would make sense. It's just Peter and I. So, uh, you know, what are we going to do? But we're talking about companies here. They, they list a few in the uh, in the article, if I can find it. Oh, man. Oh, here we go. Uh, little companies. Uh, there's a little startup in Mountain View, California called Google. Uh, there's yeah, uh, Seattle, Washington, uh, another startup called Amazon. And I have no idea where eBay is from. All three of which uh, are, I think they've already yanked their apps. But, I mean, think of all the people that can no longer bid on things from their watch. <laughs> from their watch. As they fall into a manhole. You know, and now they've got to suffer and pull their phone out of their pocket. I mean, the indecency of it. Like, yeah. uh, I fully expect a uh, human rights uh, trial yeah. over the ACLU this. ACLU will be all over this. Yeah, Absolutely. We're like cave people now. It, it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, Instagram also gone. Very important. So I think it is, it's an indicator of how the, the smartwatch or really the wearable market as a whole has just not been successful. And I think the big reason there is that there's not a lot of innovation in the space. That there, if you have an Apple Watch version one, there's no reason to upgrade to a version two or version three. And if you have a version three, you could probably swap out for a version one. You wouldn't even notice it. Uh, on the Google side, they're not even trying. The Google Wear stuff is, is pretty bad. And I, I love Android, but the, the Wear watches, they just, I don't know, it's not, not even worth buying them. So uh, I think there's a, a sign that either we're going to see some new technology come out there or this, this market is, is dead. So, so pardon my ignorance for a moment, but if there was an app that was built on the, uh, the 4 SDK and I had a version 3 Apple Watch I wouldn't be able to run it? No, you would. You yeah. would? Okay. Yep. Um, so the, it, it, this gets it really confusing. It doesn't match up. The, they the don't match the up. Yeah. Okay. When uh, watchOS 2 came out, it was applied to the original Apple Watch. So Apple Watch version 2 hadn't come out yet. Okay. And so when Apple Watch version 2 came out, then watchOS 3 was out. Now we got watchOS 4. It's all messed up. So, so Yeah, difference between hardware and software, but they're both kind of at 4. They right might as now, well so. name them after a thundercats or something instead of giving them numbers because it's all meaningless at this point but uh, if i if i recall correctly you can have the original apple watch and still run watch os4 gotcha so okay. yeah well uh in other uh apple news but this probably with a product that we think maybe we'll, we'll perform a little bit better mm -hmm. um, than the apple watch uh apple unveils the new 9.7 inch ipad uh with apple pencil support plus an a10 fusion chip at an education event. So this one, um, I watched a little bit of that event. It really seems targeted towards schools and, and um, maybe ways for uh, for schools to uh, afford to be able to, to get actually iPads in front of everyone. So I, uh, I'm going to sound a little bit like an Apple hater, which is funny because I'm sitting here on my MacBook and I've got an iPad in my backpack. And uh, so I, I use products from every vendor, so it, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, but Apple has not really innovated with the iPads recently, right? Um, and you know what? Uh, I'm sure Tim Cook is is watching the show right now, yeah. and he's probably yelling at his screen, but the Apple Pencil! And that that's not innovation. Um, so the iPad is largely unchanged from the very first iPad that came out. There's really not anything new on it. More memory, more storage, but that's it. So in the absence of innovation, people don't have a need to upgrade. 
And so they're trying to innovate in other ways. And here they're innovating by uh, cutting the price down, right? And there's two reasons they're doing this. One is to improve sales because iPad sales have been on a decline for two years now, which is, is not good. Uh, but the other thing is that in the school world, Chromebooks have been eating Apple's lunch like crazy. Chromebooks are cheaper and they have physical keyboards. And I don't care how fancy your tablet is. If you give somebody a physical keyboard, they can type and get things done. If you give them a touch keyboard, you can't write an essay on a, on a touch screen. And, and schools have recognized that. So there have been a few high visibility cases where schools have bought iPads because they got huge incentives from Apple. But by and large, iPads have not been successful in most schools. Chromebooks have. So Apple's trying to combat that um, because they absolutely refuse to put a touchscreen on a laptop for whatever reason. Uh, they don't have a cheap MacBook Air like everybody keeps asking for. They don't have a touchscreen solution there. So instead, they decided let's make a less expensive iPad. So they did. Uh, the new iPad, which is a great iPad. It's a 9.7 inch. It's got the A10 Fusion chip, so it's fast. Uh, it's got Apple Pencil support, so it's basically an iPad Pro. Um, and it is priced at, is it $300, $329, I think? $329 uh, uh, for consumers and $299 for schools. So even at $329 for consumers, yeah. that is, that, I mean, that's iPad mini prices, but you get a 9.7-inch screen and, and great battery life and all that. So um, if anybody ever says, oh, I don't want an iPad, they're too expensive, well, that argument kind of goes out the window. These things are, are downright affordable, and it's good hardware. It's not the, oh, we're going to put in the old A8 processor. Uh, you know, that, That's not what they're doing. You're getting the latest A10. It, it's, it's really, really good stuff. Uh, if you want to get the pencil, you can. It supports the pencil. Um, but there's still no physical keyboard, and the Apple keyboards are not, not phenomenal. Uh, you, again, you run into the same kind of problem with typing and all of that. Uh, but these are definitely targeted to schools. They are available to consumers, though. If you ever uh, have been holding off on upgrading an iPad, or maybe you're going to get your kid an iPad instead of an old, outdated iPad mini that hasn't been updated in forever, you can now go with this option, and it really is a, a great option that's out there. So uh, so we'll see what that does for sales. Maybe they'll, they'll do an uptick. Who knows? Uh, we'll see this holiday season, I think. Does, does pencil support mean that a pencil's not included? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, okay. it, it, no, no pencil included, because the pencil's 100 bucks. That's a that's a big line item right there. Because I was going to say the big thing here is now, as as opposed to with the Chromebook, you could finally start teaching kids cursive again. <laughs> now that's out the window, unless you're going to drop another hundred bucks on each kid. But no. yeah, I think the sales have declined ever since they started that commercial with the little girl that doesn't know what a computer is. Have you seen that? One? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. On, that's a little. Smug. It's still a computer, young lady. Yeah. Let's Even not. if you talk to it. Even Scotty, he knew what a computer was. Yeah, this is it's ridiculous. <laughs> well, speaking of, uh, uh, or staying with Mac, I should say, uh, we've got an update now on Mac OS High Sierra 10.13.4. So I assume, Don, that this solves all of the issues that we've been having with High Sierra, and it's time to finally make the switch for me. It's almost turning into a running gag on the show about all of the High Sierra issues. Uh, you know, macOS Sierra 10.12 was actually really stable. And then High Sierra 10.13 comes out, and boy, it is just problem after problem after problem. But you, you need to upgrade because you need the security fixes and other things that are a part of it. But it is, I mean, it's just problem after problem. I wanted to highlight this one. I've kind of gotten bored with it. So eh, why report on those problems? Who cares? But this one actually affects enterprises and businesses. Um, in macOS 10.13.4, iSierra, they release support for something really, really cool, which are external graphics processors, external GPUs. 
right? My MacBook is a, it's a 2017 MacBook. It uses the Intel Iris video, or, you know, I say that. Let me actually verify that's what I'm running. But, uh, so it's got a, here we go, built-in Intel Iris Plus graphics. And I don't care if it's got plus in the name or whatever the number is, the Intel graphics are, are baseline, mediocre, right? Like, really not good stuff. Everybody knows you need, like, a, an ATI Radeon or an NVIDIA GeForce card if you want uh, good 3D rendering or, or whatever. You've got to have one of those discrete graphics cards. MacBooks don't come with them. iMacs do if you choose to buy that option. But if you don't buy the option, you can't add one after the fact. you got to buy it at the time. Well, now, because the Thunderbolt 3 bus is so big, they're selling these external boxes. There's three different vendors that offer them now. Uh, they cost about $500, and you can stick a, a discrete graphics card inside the box, plug it in via Thunderbolt, and now you've got a high-end graphics card on your laptop or on your iMac. You can plug in. You can do that. Really, really cool feature for the people who need it. Unfortunately, they had to upgrade the graphics subsystem to do that. And when they did it, they broke the DisplayLink support. Now, DisplayLink, many people use without knowing it. If you have any kind of USB video device, right? Um, like they sell these docking stations. I've actually got one in the cabinet behind me I can probably grab. But uh, uh, they plug in via USB port and then they give you a DVI or HDMI or, or whatever uh, output video. If you have a device like that, it's now broken. In fact, most graphics applications, third-party graphics applications broke with the 10.13.4 update. Uh, one of the articles that I grabbed was uh, from Mac Rumors where they were talking about the Duet display, which I use, lets me hook uh, my iPad Pro up. I have a 12.9-inch iPad Pro. I can stick it next to my laptop. I can run Duet, hook up a lightning cable, and now I've got a second monitor. So I'm on my laptop, but it's like I've got two monitors. That's pretty cool. Well, it was until 10.13.4, now it doesn't work, right? The Duet display team took a look at it, and they said, well, Apple broke it. They can't fix it. We've got to get Apple to fix it. And so they've been talking to Apple. Apple has been radio silent on this one. They haven't communicated anything, so maybe it'll get fixed in 10.13.5. At Apple's current trajectory, 10.13.5 is already in beta, but the fix is not there. So I'm going to guess the fix is not going to be in 10.13.5. It'll probably come in 0.6, so you're probably looking at four months before a fix comes out for this one, if a fix comes out at all. Apple has broken other devices like this before, like the uh, M5 controllers on iPad. They left that broken for six months. The uh, Logitech keyboards for the iPad Pros, they left those broken for almost a year. Like they, They've done this before. Um, don't count on a quick fix. So if you work in a business or a school or an enterprise, and you're dependent on USB video devices that use DisplayLink, 10.13.4 is not going to help you. Now, here's the problem. There's security fixes in 10.13.4. If you don't upgrade, you don't get the security fixes. If you've got that hardware, you can't upgrade. Now you're in a bit of a catch-22. And unfortunately, that's a place where we're, we're ending up more often these days. Uh, that you've got to look at, and it, and it, it stinks. You know, yeah. there's not much we can say. Um, Peter, I think you might have the right idea on some of this is to say, you know what, I'll just stick with Sierra. But yeah. Apple's not pushing out updates as fast for Sierra as they used to, so it's only a matter of time before there's an unpatched security exploit exploit there as well. Yeah, and this makes me think of, like, when you do SWOT analysis in your company and you're looking at, at threats that are external. And, man, if you're a small business that relies on, on a product that you've made that, that, uh, that works with, with Mac, uh, with an Apple in that way, 
that's that's a real big threat that can cost you a lot of money. So um, that that's definitely something that's that's tough to hear. But I, I kind of feel like I was telling you earlier. I I feel like High High Sierra is the Vista, Windows Vista of <laughs> Mac of the Mac world. But you know we're, we're talking about ten thirteen uh, ten dot thirteen dot four dot five. When is just 10.14 coming out? And you know, and we move fast. This there's a lot of speculation here. I, I don't know if you remember back in the Windows XP days. Mm-hmm. There was a period where I feel like it was in 2004, 2005, where there were so many security vulnerabilities that finally Microsoft said, you know what, that's it, let's stop. And they stopped development of new features. They said, no more new features. Let's focus on shoring up our security. Let's get this operating system where it needs to be. And for a period of almost two years, they did no new features. They just did security fixes. And then they started rolling forward. And so when Vista came out, it had all these security updates in it that destroyed almost everything. And people hated Vista. And so then they worked out the bugs on that. And then that became Windows 7. And people liked Windows 7. Well, with Mac OS, that's kind of where High Sierra is. A lot of this stuff is they're doing security fixes and they're breaking things. And it's taking developers and stuff time to get that sorted out. Tim Cook has come out and said, we're going to focus on it. They did this with iOS, where they said with, with iOS 11.3, there have been so many problems. With iOS 11.4, we're going to focus on stability. And for Apple to have to say that, that's pretty shocking because they've always had the it just works mentality. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? It doesn't just work right now. They've got a lot of quirks and bugs and things that are going on patch. So I I expect to see a little more of that uh, over the next year. That they, They've got an amazing reputation. It's easy to lose a reputation. It's hard to earn one. And I think they're in that situation where they're sitting on billions of dollars in cash. So it's easy to say, ah, what do we care? But they don't want to lose that reputation either. So we should see that, at least some activity going on there. I'd be surprised if we, well, WWDC is coming up this summer in just a couple of months. Uh, I I imagine the next version of macOS will be announced there. And hopefully... They're they're just touting stability and security all across the board. We'll have to wait to to see. Yeah, my understanding too is that there's a, a development team that is working on High Sierra and the updates for that, and then there's a separate team that's working on the next version. So it's not like that's necessarily holding that up as they do that. But you never know in a situation like this where yeah. maybe they're pulling developers back and saying, "Hey, we need all hands on deck." Um, you know, getting this stable. So yeah, it was back in December, I think we reported on how Apple had transferred a lot of the macOS developers over to the iOS team, mm-hmm. which means you're starving macOS of developer resources. Yeah. So now uh, I think they're they're starting to see what happens when you do that, yeah. and and it's is resulting in some bad stuff. Uh, so we'll we'll see. I'm trying to pull up when WWDC is this year. It's it's coming up. It shouldn't be. Uh, oh, June. Uh, so okay. June fourth yeah, through eighth, which is just uh, two months away. Yeah. Well, um, sticking with with Apple here, uh, a, a big change um, that really surprised me to read. But Apple's planning to use its own chips in Macs uh, from 2020, uh, replacing Intel. And I mean, Apple has are always. Um, you know, been been one to manage their own hardware. Uh, you know, where you talk about Windows or Linux that can run on all different kinds of devices, and so um, you know, it's been one of the the big selling points. And so they're bringing one more element uh, in house now, which uh, I would Im- imagine maybe you know by giving them more control over that, maybe helps them to either reduce costs or in- improve features. Well, so 
that's what you know they, they lead you to believe. Uh, <laughs> I think this has been but, largely sensationalized, yeah. right? So so this is the I, I tried to grab the article from the most reputable source I could, and and so this one's from Bloomberg because I want to make fun of it, and uh, <laughs> and I, I can't make fun of it when it's from you know Bob. Bob and Tom's blog or, or whatever, you know, I've got to have something reputable. So here's Bloomberg. And what they're saying is Apple plans to use its own chips and Macs from 2020, replacing Intel, right? Uh, and then they go on to say the move would be a major blow to Intel, Apple Mac chip supplier, and Apple is working on software platform to merge iPad and Mac apps. All right, now, we announced uh, two weeks ago that Apple has plans for allowing iPad apps to run on Mac OS. And I said, that's kind of bizarre because... Macs don't have touchscreens. How the heck are you supposed to use all these iPad apps without a touchscreen? Doesn't make sense. Apple's refusing to put a touchscreen on anything, so it just doesn't make sense. But that's that's the plan, right? Now this comes out about changing processors. Apple's done this before, right? When they switched from 68K to PowerPC, then when they switched from PowerPC to Intel. So about every 10 years, they've switched hardware like that, and it's been a big deal. When they switched to Intel... Uh, you know, every application had to be recompiled and and basically built to run on the Intel platform. And that was that was painful for people to go through. A lot of people remember that. But when they made that switch to Intel, those processors were so much faster. Mac OS mm-hmm. ran so much better that it just made sense. Well, now Apple's planning on porting iPad apps over to Mac OS. They want that to be more mobile. I don't think this is about switching from Intel. I think this is about, hey, we've got these... A10 Fusion chips or Cortex or whatever chips that are super mega fast on the iPad, they can run a laptop now. They can they can do that. So let's start using our own chip. Not that we're going to start creating a new chip, but that we've already got a chip that would be perfectly fine for a MacBook Air. And then you wouldn't have to port the iPad app. Hell, it could run iOS. You could run iOS on a MacBook Air uh, if it had the right processor in it. It had that similar hardware. So I think that's what this is is really a harbinger of. They're saying, look, the days of macOS are limited. Soon, macOS is simply going to be the development platform for writing these apps, and if even that. And then iOS is going to be the new standard operating system. Now, it does say here the move would be a major blow to Intel. So I did some digging to find out how big of a blow. Uh, it turns out that Apple is responsible for 5% of Intel's revenue. So how much did Intel stocks drop after this? 9.2%. It shows you how the stock market is not based on fact these days. It's based on sensationalism. This is not that big of a deal. That that could be because of a trade war with China. Now, there could be a tariff now on chips. I believe you mean China. I'm sorry. You're right. (laughs) Well, it's funny because you said that, and as you were talking, I brought up Intel's stock recently thinking, wow, I wonder how much it's gone down since uh, Spectre and and Meltdown and everything. No, it's... uh, it was strong. A, it was yeah. It's it's up. It's way up. It's uh. It was at thirty seven uh last September, and now it's at forty eight fifty. So, yeah, stock market is a mysterious things, beast. Things are looking up. Don't <laughs> yeah. don't feel too bad for this guys. So I you know this one I I'm not worried about. It. I I think that it makes sense. Hey iOS, you if you go into the Apple App Store for Mac OS, it is like a barren wasteland. The apps are overpriced. They're not updated. There's not many of them in there. You go into the iOS App Store. And, I mean, it is a, yeah. a smorgasbord of, of amazing apps that do all sorts of crazy things. Uh, Microsoft Office, Adobe Photoshop, all these things are, are right there. It makes sense. I, I think, you know, when they announced they were killing most of the features in macOS Server, that was like that first nail in the coffin saying, I think the days of macOS are, are numbered. And we're going to see this one slowly fade away. And iOS is going to step in and take its place. That's 
more than likely what this is. So by 2020, that's that's my prediction. I, I think that we'll have laptops coming from Apple that are, are running iOS. And and damn it, they're going to have a touchscreen because I just don't understand how Apple can can stay away from that much nope, longer. Nope, they'll have pencil support. Ooh, didn't think about You'll that. You'll be able to just use uh, that. Oh, so you get an extra 100 bucks. Yeah, because your finger's free. That pencil, that's $100. You know, the pencil does use a different sensor than... than uh, than your finger on a touchscreen, they could do that. I mean, uh, oh, the the Surface had the the yeah, pencil that, that went on move the corner that there. Would be. Yeah. They're totally going to do that. Yeah, that's exactly. Oh, that's, man. <laughs> that's why. Yeah, you heard it here first on the Technado. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, switching gears now. Well, I keep saying switching gears, but it's still Intel. Everything's related these days. But uh, over at PC World, uh, this article is about Intel's debut of the six-core i9 CPUs. It could push gaming laptops past five uh, gigahertz gigahertz yeah. gigahertz speeds so yeah you're talking about uh, gaming kind of leading leading the charge here and this example this was a big deal um you know intel f- for 10 years now we've had i3s i5s and i7s and now they come out and they announce the i9 i'm kind of curious what's next you know I do they, do they go to i11 yeah. or it goes to 11 um maybe they, they go back and they say all right let the even numbers this time here's your i2 yeah, good the, luck the f Anyhow, so um, so they announced the i9s, which obviously they sound incredibly powerful. I'm not a big processor guy myself. I, I usually just try and get the best one I can when I, I buy a system, or, which is usually just the most expensive one, uh, or the one that my wallet can handle. That That's usually what I end up getting. Um, but on this one, it's been so long since Intel has announced a new architecture deployment like this. So an i9 coming out, uh, it is a big deal. I want to make sure we address this one, right, Peter? And there's a ton of articles out there on it. They also launched another set of processors at the same time as part of their uh, Coffee Lake release. The i9s are, are, are Coffee Lake. So um, so what we, what I want to do on this one is I just want to mention it here because it is important news. Intel's releasing i9s that are supposed to be awesome. Uh, but next week, we're going to have a guest on the podcast. We're going to have Wes Bryan, one of the edutainers over at IT Pro TV. He is a huge hardware guy. He really loves talking about this stuff. We're going to have him on the show, and he's going to accent for us exactly what it is that is so powerful and new about these processors. Like, why why would you want an i9? What does an i9 do different than an i7 didn't already do? You know, an i i5 has multiple cores, four cores, whatever. An i7 has the same cores, but it can do hyper-threading. That's the big difference. You go with an i7, you get hyper-threading. You go with an i5, you don't. You go down to an i3, then you may only have two cores. You may not have virtualization extensions or or something like that. There's a difference. And so Wes is going to talk to us about what that difference is with the i9, what makes it better. There's TurboMax technology he's going to talk about and a few other things. So definitely tune in for our podcast next week when Wes does the deep dive on the i9s. Yeah, and Wes is the kind of guy that, that wears one of those, you know, static discharge bracelets just as a fashion statement. So Safety people. That's, that's, what, uh, <laughs> that's the kind of person you can trust for uh, for that, that kind of chip news. So very excited to have him in here uh, and explain, us, uh, explain it to us. Um, all right, next story up on MacRumors.com. Uh, Foxconn acquires popular accessory maker Belkin along with Linksys and Wemo. Uh, yeah, Linksys was... Bought by Belkin a while back, right? I seem yeah. to remember we went to I think it was RSA where they still had two separate booths because the acquisition had just happened and they'd already reserved it, but it's it was so confusing. It was a really weird setup. So Linksys got bought by Cisco okay. when Cisco was trying to make an entry into the consumer market. 
And what Cisco found was that they they started doing well in Europe under the Cisco brand, but in the U.S., they anytime they tried to switch from Linksys to Cisco branding, it just didn't work. So it stayed Linksys, and so ultimately it didn't help their brand. So Cisco sold off Linksys to Belkin, so new under new management, right? Well, now Foxconn has bought Belkin. All right, so why does this matter? Well, key thing here is that Foxconn is... A, a Chinese company, you know, they, they manufacture a ton of the iPhones, uh, you know, most of those contracts are there. But the reality is Foxconn makes way more than just iPhones. If you were to crack open your computer, probably half the components in it are coming out of Foxconn factories. Uh, it used to be that the majority of the power supply cable connectors were all made at Foxconn factories. So these guys are, are heavy industry. They've scooped it up. Uh, and it's actually Foxconn Interconnect Technology, FIT, uh, which is a Foxconn subsidiary that did the acquisition, uh, but they picked it up, and so now Belkin is owned by them, which means Linksys is as well. Uh, Wemo is along for the ride on that one. Uh, if you do home automation or any of the Google Assistant, Alexa-type stuff where you do, hey, turn my lights on, uh, Wemo has your back there. So, uh, so all that's now under Foxconn. We'll see if that actually ends up meaning anything for us. Um, on one hand, it usually means uh, cheaper hardware, right? Because Foxconn produces at such a massive level that they can do things a lot less expensive than anybody else. But it also usually means a reduction in firmware update frequency, which is not a good thing. The time will tell. We'll, we'll see on this one. But uh, Linksys has changed hands so much recently that, uh, I don't know, it, it, I'm I'm not as comfortable buying Linksys hardware as I used to be. I, I used to like it because you could, you could mod the router, you could throw custom firmware on there and do all sorts of stuff. We'll see if that continues to be the case under Foxconn's helm. Yeah, and Foxconn, uh, once again, voted the uh, number one place to work in Shenzhen uh, yeah. in a mandatory survey uh, that they were given <laughs> at gunpoint. So that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, not, not a great work <laughs> environment. Uh, all right, so uh, VentureBeat has our next article. We're switching gears now to Windows. But are we? Because we're really talking about Linux here. Uh, Windows Server 2019 will feature Linux and Kubernetes support. So... Don, this is something that, that you've been talking about you know, for quite some time. Microsoft is doing this despite me. Yeah. So I made a prediction back in December. And I said, uh, I said, I really don't see how many more versions of Windows Server Microsoft can release. Windows Server 2016 honestly meets its needs. I don't really see a point in updating it. I predicted that we would see a Microsoft Linux distribution this year, that in 2018 we would see that. We still might. But Microsoft uh, decided to prove me wrong, and they have announced that Windows Server 2019 will be coming out. There'll be a new version, right? But look at the headline on this thing, and, and this is VentureBeat, but even Microsoft is doing this, where, hey, it's Windows Server 2019 that's coming out, but big feature, it features Linux and Kubernetes support. And that means that if you fire up Hyper-V, you can run Ubuntu VMs with full integration. So it's a natively supported guest like the Windows operating system has been. So Linux is now on equal footing with Windows. Also, Kubernetes support means that you can build Linux containers and you can deploy them across Linux and Windows hypervisors, and they'll fire right up and spin up and act just normal. So what Microsoft's big bonus thing here is that, hey, Windows Server 2019 can now behave like a Linux server. How is that a selling point exactly? Yeah. Like the the selling point of our product is that it can act like this other product, this other product that just happens to be free. So um, that's not you know a rousing endorsement for a server product, but uh, but they are doing it right. So it's rolling out. So we are seeing Windows Server 2019. 
They uh, have already started rolling out insider previews for it. So I've got the insider preview page pulled up here. Uh, and they're kind of highlighting some of the new stuff that's up there. Uh, you will be able to do in-place OS upgrades from Windows Server 2012 R2 and 2016. Applications will be compatible. Uh, one interesting thing that I, I couldn't find before the show, I was skimming through trying to find it. Um, I have it on good authority from people with inside connections on Microsoft that Windows Server 2019 will be the first one to not include a GUI, that it will be a core install only. Um, and here we go. Uh, Windows Server, well, that's the VNext one. Uh, here is saying the server core edition is available in English only. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah, see, that's not saying it. But uh, but I, I have heard from people on the inside at Microsoft that uh, that I sound like Fox News, don't I? You do. Yeah. Unsubstantiated rumors. And reports. No, there are yeah, reports. Um, you know, with with the credible sources uh, say that it is just going to be a core services install, which honestly is all you should be doing anyway, right? Yeah. So, but but that's a big difference because a lot of people I know run Windows servers because they have a GUI. If something goes wrong, they can sit down in front of the server and log in. For small businesses, that's important. For enterprise, you shouldn't be doing that, right? It, you should be doing a core services install. So they're going to be pushing that. Kubernetes support means you can start working in containers. And I still think that we're going to see more and more Microsoft services get containerized, like Microsoft SQL has been. Uh, but we'll have to see. Time will tell on that one. But neat to see it. Windows Server 2019 coming out later this year. Yeah, and I can only assume that uh, Sasha uh, Nadella and, and Tim Cook, they get together once a week, watch our show, <laughs> and they go, how can we spite Don this right. week? And, uh, well, they've done it again. So. Yeah, it's tough being a technology work, influencer like I am, yeah. but uh, somebody's got to do it. You're influencing by having them do the opposite of what you predict. That's, that's one way to go. Well, uh, this is a, a story this week that was, um, we were saying, underreported a little bit. Um, we, I mean, we, we've had so many hacks. We've had so many, uh, you know, ransomware things over the last uh, several months that maybe it's just kind of old news. But uh, this one's interesting because it's a government. So uh, Atlanta city government systems down due to ransomware attack. Uh, like the, this article from Ars Technica says, insert Walking Dead joke here. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, things are uh, things were shut down there uh, for a while. And, and you've got some insight into what happened here, Don? Yeah, this is a really bizarre one. So um, basically, it's a ransomware attack. One machine got infected, and then it spread and started infecting other ones. That's you know the way this stuff goes. Um, the systems all got locked down. Uh, not, not all, but many systems did. And uh, you know Atlanta didn't really have a great system in place to respond to this. So um, if you dig through the articles, it talks about how Microsoft and Cisco and the FBI, they're all doing investigations into it. But you don't need much of an investigation to figure this thing out, right? You know, one machine gets infected, and then it starts spreading on all the machines because it's behind the firewall at that point. So it's ransomware. Uh, I found it comical that if you if you start to look at, at some of the information that people are reporting on, on having lost, um, you'll see, here is this other article from uh, The Hill, a ransomware attack brought Atlanta to its knees, and no one seems to care. And you know what, that, to its knees. that's true to an extent because a lot of us have become desensitized. We've seen so many of these attacks. But the other thing is, at this point, you look at it and you say, these people should have known better, right? You, if you have uh, an IT department, they should be protecting or at least planning for ransomware. And so in this article, I, I'm not thrilled overall with this article, but there's some interesting stuff in here where they cite people who, um, uh, who were affected by it. And there was one person in here who said they lost like 17 years of data. Okay, well, if you were storing 17 years of data, 
on your laptop without a backup and it got encrypted, that's your own fault. Like it should have been stored somewhere where it's getting backed up. And if you're storing your backups online and your backups get encrypted, that's your own fault. Your backup should be offline. People know that. That's standard operating procedure. Those are fundamentals that everybody should be aware of. Um, this was straight up ransom. Uh, you know, it was a, uh, I think they, they were asking for something like $8,000 per computer or $51,000 uh, to be able to unlock all the machines. Obviously, they didn't pay. And now they're going to restore systems. And I guess it turns out they don't have backups of everything. So they're, they're having to do that uh, and get into things. But uh, another interesting thing here was the IT department responded with something pretty comical. They said, uh, they basically sent an announcement. If people called in saying, hey, my computer's acting weird, they would say, you need to unplug your computer. Well, unplugging your computer is really ineffective because if you're already infected, when you plug it back in, it's just going to keep doing what it's doing. Like you're beyond that point. If your computer's infected, it needs to be erased and restored from a clean backup. You need to find what that that uh, attack vector was and get that corrected. There was some update that wasn't applied or some security hole that was created. So now they are losing data. It's uh, you know it's just kind of part and parcel of what goes on with these attacks. I, I cannot find that part where the guy's talking about 17 years of, of data and uh, other people talking about all the information they lost. If you're storing your data in a system that's backed up, yeah. you shouldn't be losing more than, say, 24 hours of data. But these people are losing years because they're not storing their data somewhere safe. And I think it's because a lot of politicians just don't seem to trust they don't trust the government computers. I've noticed this trend. Like, remember the the Hillary mail server scandal? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, because they were going off of yeah to their own. Why? Why would why would she or, or any politician want to run their own email server? Because they can do a better job. Not doubtful, but because they don't trust the other servers, that's a little more realistic, yeah. right? And I think that happens even at state level here, like with Atlanta. Oh, well, Atlanta that was city level, right? Um, if they, if they don't trust the IT department then they're not going to store the data safely, and they're going to lose it. So that's all going on in Atlanta right now. It should be a lesson to everybody, right? So if you're out there listening and you, you don't even know where Atlanta is, that's fine. Know that your number one job as an IT person is to make sure that if your systems get damaged, you have a way to get them back, right? Your backups are super important, and they get neglected all too often. People just don't do their backups, uh, or their backups are failing. They don't even notice that for me, for every company I've worked for, when I got to work, the first thing I did was check the backup logs. Did the backups run last night? Were they successful? Weren't? If they weren't, I need to rerun them, right? You never want to go more than, well, it depends on your industry. You might not want to go more than 15 minutes without a backup, but, uh, but at least 24 hours for most places, you want to make sure you've got good backups that you can get at. I mean, this is a city that the freeways were literally on fire last summer. Um, oh, yeah, so, I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, so I think this this attack <laughs> seems to be um, the kind of the least of their worries. Um, my favorite was The Onion uh, had a headline, which is actually, sadly, the first place I heard about this attack, because I you kind of do the, like, <laughs> wait, did, did something really happen? Let me go check the other news. Uh, but the headline was, lame cyber attack on Atlanta doesn't even turn ATMs and street sweepers into killing machines. And they have a great quote um, from a made-up uh, resident, Dan Martinez. <laughs> Um, that says, all that happened so far is that I can't use the free Wi-Fi at the airport or pay my water bill. Oh, no, whatever will we do? Save us from this deadly menace. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> he says, yeah, when he, when he found out that uh, not a single 911 call was disrupted and they were only asking for 50000 he wondered aloud, what the hell was wrong with cyber criminals these days? Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, that's where we've come to. Well, and the fact that they were only asking 50000 tells you that this was not a targeted attack. 
Mm-hmm. It, you know, it was just one of those where they, they throw it out on the internet and, and see what it hits. Um, it worked, yeah. And yeah, had they known it was Atlanta, they would have said, oh, no, it's $3 million. Yeah. Because the you know, city's got it. Sure. Uh, but yeah. Well, they're not paying random. either, so yeah. Uh, that's true. Uh, all right, and so uh, speaking of ridiculous stories, uh, like like the onion, we've got a couple that you'd think are onion stories, but I couldn't uh, make up my mind this week, so we've got <laughs> two. Not. We've got two, yeah. And the first one we'll get to is I think it's my favorite. Uh, this is from Forbes, um, where I go to for all of my IT news. Uh, in light of Facebook data breach, it's time to switch to Google Plus. And I hope this is this is an opinion piece. Uh, yes, opinions are expressed by Forbes contributors, and this is Anthony Karts. Anthony. This is Anthony Parks. K. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what I said, I think. Um, so, yeah. Uh, you know, if you don't want your information being leaked, then you definitely want to go to a social network where no one is. Uh, so, literally, no one will get your information. Well, if you read through the article, his argument is that on Google+, Plus, they're not doing ad injection in the news feed, and they're not selling your data to someone else, and, and, and all that stuff, right? Um, but the guy misses the point because... Facebook didn't have ads in the news feed either until they hit a certain subscriber number that Google doesn't have. If Google hit it, they'd have ads in the news feed yeah. also, People right? don't advertise in places and where people aren't. He said that Google isn't selling your ad information to other people, but they are. They, they, they absolutely are. That's what Google does. Yeah. They're an ad company. That's the way they work. I mean, they provide search and other things. Yeah, why do you ads... think Gmail's free and search is free? Yeah. Why do you think there's an AdSense cookie on every single web page you visit on the entire planet, or at least Google Analytics? You, you've got the little, um, what's it called, a web bug? Yeah. Uh, whatever that is. Or, a yeah. little bit of JavaScript or, or whatever that's on every single stinking page. Uh, Google does that. So this totally misses the mark. Um, it, it was embarrassing to read the article. Like somebody at Forbes should have checked this and said, eh, that's not, that's not really. I mean, unless it's intended to be so over the top of a headline that it's, but, but that never gets to that yeah. in the article where they say. This would be seriously. like saying McDonald's food is so bad for you. It's time to switch to Burger King. It's really the same thing. You're just switching from one to the other. I mean, uh, it's not the same thing. It's flame broiled, Don. Whoa, I can't believe you there would is say that. that. It's, uh, yeah. Flash frozen beef. <laughs> but they're French fries. Suck. I know way it's too that. much. Apparently, about these I, I'm I'm a sucker for their commercials. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we've we've got that one other uh, ridiculous story here as we get to the end. This one is from CSO Online, um, and it sounds like an old story, but it it. It kind of is and kind of isn't. Voting machine vendor firewall config passwords posted on public support forum. So you said when you looked at this, it's yeah. actually po- a post from 2011, but so, it's just getting out. Yeah. So do you remember when uh, Apple had the big exploit uh, in, in 2017 where if you were in High Sierra and you got a password prompt for some elevated privilege thing? Oh, you could just not put in a password. You could type the username root, leave the password blank, and it would let you in, yeah. right? And it turned out there was a post in an Apple support forum from two months before where somebody had, had said they used it as a workaround, right? Mm. So it had been floating out there, and just nobody noticed. This one was posted in 2011, seven years ago, and just got noticed last week. So what happened is a network engineer for a voting machine company uh, was having a problem with their firewall. And so they went onto a Cisco forum, and they, a, a public forum on Cisco's website, and they said, hey, I'm trying to do this. I'm having a problem. I think it was with a VPN configuration. It's not working for me. Here's my running config, and posted the running configuration. Now, the running config contains a lot of information in it. There's sensitive information in there that is encrypted, but... The older the platform, 
the more likely it is that you can break whatever that encryption is. And in this case, the configuration that he punched in, or put in contained the public IP addresses of the firewall. It contained passwords for the VPN. It contained passwords for the system itself. He didn't sanitize any of the data. He just posted the straight up running config of that firewall right onto a public website. Now, this is, is I mean, it's, a, it's an amateur mistake. It's a mistake that somebody makes when they're trying to configure a firewall the first time and they're learning on the job, right? If you work in any field that requires any degree of security and protection, you need to use trained professionals, people who know how to configure the equipment. In this case, he didn't know how to configure Cisco ASA. When they bought it from Cisco, they should have bought consulting services from Cisco to get it configured. They didn't know how, right? But instead, they followed the, the home user perspective of, I'll just figure it out. With a home user, you can do that. But when you are manufacturing voting machines, somebody could get this information and get access to the development side of the company and start to attack that process, you know, start to get that inroad with that network. That's very, very realistic, all right? So the challenge here is this was leaked inadvertently by somebody who had access to that configuration but should have known better. And it really highlights how important it is to educate your IT personnel, really educate everybody inside of your company. But if you post a question on a forum, any data that you put up there is public. So you can't give out your IP address, even your email address, things like that. It, it, it gets scraped. It's, in this case, it was in Google search engine. Somebody searched, found it, and said, oh, my gosh, this is, this is a voting machine company. Here's, here's their IP address. Here's, here's a hashed password. So I might have to work at that a bit, but not every hash is perfect. And once they get that information, now somebody could potentially get in, uh, and now you've got a bigger problem. Now, fortunately, it was posted in 2011. The odds of that piece of hardware still being in place today, seven years later, is really unlikely. If that guy still works there. Yeah, but <laughs> we're just finding out about it now. Yeah. If you're a cyber criminal, maybe you found out about it in 2013. Yeah, and you wouldn't have put it on the news then. You would have just run with it. Yeah, and yeah. you've been in there, and now maybe they replace that equipment, but you've already backdoored some other server behind there, and you've created a persistent tunnel, and so you're you're in even though they put new hardware in. Like yeah. that, that's the reality of what happens with these things. And it's so, so important that if you ever post configuration information online, you got to sanitize it. You've got to remove IP addresses. You've got to remove usernames, passwords, anything like that, especially when it has to do with VPN tunnels. You've got to get that stuff clear. And that's it's also important. a reason why you want to make sure you only give access to things to people that need them. And you say, yeah, this is someone who, who should have had access to this, but probably shouldn't if he's making mistakes like this. And so, um, you know, there's a reason I don't have any of the passwords here. Don doesn't trust me with any of that stuff. And it's very <laughs> smart because uh, I would have posted it all on Facebook and it would have been all over uh, Russia by now. But uh, if any of you have any computer-related questions that you want our help with, please just send us your passwords and, uh, and Don will take a look and, and <laughs> jump in and take care of anything for you. Yeah. And uh, do remember that if somebody gives you your password and you do something mean to them, that is still illegal. It's, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, even though even though they're asking for it. Yeah, good point. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Never mind. Don't send us any information. Well, that's going to do it for the uh, first episode of the Technado. Very exciting. It's uh, it it feels different. Does it feel different to you? You know, I and and for you out there in TV land, maybe you appreciate this, but I was pushing for a sound machine, right? You know, like sound yeah. effects. We're and still stuff. working so on we, that. We'll, we'll see. 
Yeah, we've got um, Brad back in the control room now saying, no, I've got that. It's ready. <laughs> we just need to uh, get that in here, and then, you know, we can have different, you know, you can hear the, the technado coming, and, and maybe as, as new information is, is coming at us. It's going to be very exciting. But anyway, um, yeah, so that's the, the name change on the podcast. So you might see some different things showing up um, as the RSS feed updates, and, and you see the name change. So just know that this is the, the old IT Pro TV podcast uh, is now the Technado. So enjoy that, and feel free to subscribe, share it with your friends, uh, like it, review it, do all those things for us to really help us out. But uh, for now, Don, any closing thoughts? Hey, you know, uh, if you guys have any ideas or news stories that we missed, be sure to send those in to us. I always love to hear that. Uh, follow us on social media, like Peter said, and you can always tweet and Facebook us and say, hey, you didn't talk about this, and we'll, we'll make sure we get in there. If you have ideas for interviews, we, yeah. we actually have a number of interviews lined up. We're going to start working those into the podcast some more. But if there's topics you'd like to hear more about, always send us a, a suggestion. We love to hear about that stuff. So, uh, you know, just reach out to us via social media. Yeah, and in, in two weeks, actually, we're going to uh, be out at RSA. Um, Daniel and I will be out there, so we'll um, not only be grabbing some great interviews um, that we'll be able to play here, but um, I'm sure we'll also sit down and, and talk a little bit about our uh, thoughts. And Daniel's going to go to a lot of the sessions yep. and be able to give us some insight there. So be on the lookout for that in just a couple of weeks. But for now, we're going to go ahead and sign off. So I've been Peter, that's Don, and thanks so much for joining us.